And I spread a song so you can sing along With my special guest star for two You like to sing and dance And this podcast by chance Explores musicals for you everyone, welcome back to another episode of Life's But a Song, a podcast that likes to live in the land of musicals. I'm your host, John, and with me today is a new guest of the pod. He's a writer, director, fellow podcaster. He's one of the hosts of Midnight Mass, and according to him, he they had this title before, you know, Mike Flanagan took it. It's Michael Verratti, everyone. Woo! Yay, I hello. I fucked up your last name, did I? No, you did not. You said it right. And uh, no, Midnight Mass, the title, uh, comes from an original live series that Peaches started doing in the late 90s. So uh, we have we have no bones to pick with Mike Flanagan. We love him. We love the show. It is just funny that um, right around the time that our podcast started picking up steam, the Netflix show came out. And I think it confused a lot of search engine optimization. Uh, but uh, that's fine. Um we we love horror. Uh, that's a horror show, and um, there's a lot of synergy. And also, you can't copyright a title. So what are you gonna do, right? You're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Michael has told me twice that usually people want him to talk about horror movies or horror stuff, but today we're here to talk about the Disney Channel original movie, Teen Beach Movie. Yay! <laughs> it's like it, it's the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> You like you've got horror and then Disney Channel. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's this synergy that I don't think a lot of people really take into account. Um, what I spend a lot of time talking about on our podcast is yes, horror, but in a more broader sense, cult movies. These movies that have built a community around them, something like Rocky Horror or something like uh, Mame, Anti Mame. You know, the, so the the definition of cult is broad, but it's more about finding your tribe within this piece of art. And Disney Channel original movies are in their own way cult films because they've created this sort of insular universe that people are very devoted to. And at any given time, of course, we have breakout stars like Demi Lovato or Miley Cyrus or Zac Efron. But then there are a lot of folks that are famous on Disney Channel. And if you are watching Disney Channel as a kid, these are the biggest stars in the world. But if an adult changes the channel, they don't know who the hell that person is. And so it's kind of like, that's a cult film because to those people watching those movies, it's everything. They found their people. They found their vibe. They found their tribe. And so I think that there is still something. Yes, these are the squeaky clean versions. Mm. Um, it's not quite Rocky Horror, but considering some of the cast member crossover, it a little bit is. So I think that there is uh, there's there's still a little bit of harmony, whether we, we think there is or not. So Teen Beach Movie came out in 2013. I wouldn't believe you because it looks like it's an early 2000s movie. Personally, that's <laughs> how I feel. I'm ripping. I'm going to rip this movie to shreds, by the way. So okay. get ready. Uh, the screenplay is by Vince Marcello, Mark Landry, and Robert Horn, directed by Jeffrey Hornaday. Are we going with that? Let's go with sure. that. And uh, every song in this is written by a different person, so I'm not listing all the names. And according to IMDb, two surfing lovers whose doomed relationship is nearing to a close, find themselves swept into a dimension-traversing wave that sends them into a beach movie musical in the 60s. I haven't read this in a couple of days, so it's so <laughs> funny to me. Um, so how did you come across Teen Beach Movie? Um, you know, for as many DCOMs as I've happened upon over the years, this one, actually, I didn't seek out. Uh during probably the midpoint of the pandemic, I had a friend of mine who is a musical theater and Broadway actor uh, come and stay with me for a few months because he figured if he was going to be stuck inside in New York, he would rather be stuck inside in L.A. so he could at least take walks as opposed to be uh, stuck in the snow. And so he he came and quarantined with me for a while. And of course, he loves musicals of all shapes and sizes. And uh, he brought up Teen Beach Movie to me because he knew that I liked old school 60s beach movies and one night he was like oh, let's make a drink and we're gonna watch this and we did and it was awesome and i fell in love instantly and you know i i approached it quite cynically because by and large i'm not necessarily always seeking out movies that are made for teenage audiences i mean it's not necessarily something i i 
if they're good, they're good, regardless. It's just, I don't think to go there first, but I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. So thank you, Sean Doherty, currently on tour with the Jagged Little Pill musical. If you're out in the world, want to go see him backstage, tell him, uh, thanks for Teen Beach Movie. (laughs) Michael, I honestly don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this movie. (laughs) Well, so one of the things that appeals to me about this movie as someone who loves film that's sort of not necessarily outside of the mainstream, but walks to its own beat is I, of course, love camp and I love kitsch. And uh, the movies that this is referencing, which I think this is a bold move on Disney Channel's part, to reference a style and genre of movie that hasn't really been prevalent since the 60s. Of course, it will seem fresh to the kids, but this is like a whole reference point with the beach blanket bingo, beach party, how to stuff a wild bikini, all of these movies that were sort of not sort of, were silly. I mean, the plot was generally like, there's a surfing contest. Every now and then, just to add marquee value, they'd throw someone like Boris Karloff and Vincent Price in, in like a very B, non-consequential subplot where they're like building a ghost machine or creating it. And so the fact that this movie does all those things and stays kind of true to the beach movie formula is really fascinating because... I love those movies. I grew up watching those movies on late night cable because that's usually when they would air when I was a kid. And I just was really tickled by the idea that Disney was like, yeah, you know what the kids of the now really want? Something that hasn't even really been popular since very much the then. And so, of course, it speaks to me. (laughs) But also there uh, all those 60s movies star former Mouseketeer Annette Funicello, which that is how I think that's how Disney's like justifying it in a way. But the script is bonkers. Sure. Agree. But I I also don't think that the actors know what they're doing. Like, I don't know if they understand the parody. It's funny because I think some people are in on the joke and other people. Well, in a way, I feel like Giggles gets it. Giggles gets it. Um, <laughs> Chi Chi gets it too. You don't wear a w- wig that high and not like be in on the joke. She's full on drag. She knows what she's doing. And I don't know. It is a strange, it is strange balance, right? Because the characters played by Ross Lynch and Maya Mitchell come from our world through this sort of, as you mentioned, wave that takes them into the land of the movie. Oh, and it's very, it's that very was... much. That was some poor intern who had to write the summary. <laughs> <laughs> but when you think about it, 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 there was a movie in, I think, the mid-90s called Pleasantville that did something similar, yes. where these kids get zapped into a very wholesome 50s movie. And I just think that this movie kind of took that, ran with it, but also was like, what if beach movie? The thing that's interesting is they have to walk a really interesting balance of still presenting us from the real world while being in this very hyper camp space. And I, I think a lot of the actors who are in the movie movie mostly get it. It's just it's sort of hard to um, balance the fact that we're going along with people who are on the outside. I wrote down it's like Back to the Future meets the final girls with a splash of Pleasantville. But Disney Channel. Yeah. <laughs> Try to make all these references because Ross Lynch who I know from Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, right. um, I forgot he was a Disney Channel uh, movie actor. Um, like like you said earlier, like they, they are the stars of the Disney Channel movies that if you don't know, you don't know. Right. So, but the fact that him and Barry Bostwick, first of all, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the movie within the movie is a, parody of like the beach movies but also like they're making references to other musicals i mean for fuck's sake it's called wet side story i love that type. i love a pun i think that's so fun and stupid i when i was rewatching it i told my partner i was like i kind of want that poster like the wet side story poster i and believe me i've looked it is not available anywhere disney get on the marketing there's at least one sale right come on or Um, or some artist somewhere that probably sells makes you know these fake posters and everything let michael know he'll give you later uh but i was trying to describe this to somebody yeah the other day and he's like wet side story that's like the porn parody of Story. <laughs> i was like you're right but this is disney so it's not the porn parody. no but yeah i mean i th- i think that there is as much camp value either way 
so okay the, the fact that there's a ton of plot holes is that like also paying homage i i'm not a i'm not well versed in the beach movie genre so there's a lot of like plot holes in this one that i'm not sure if that's disney or if that's them like also paying homage to the beach movie well look um i would like to say it's an homage to the beach movie because as much as i love frankie and annette and tommy kirk and all those people it's not like those movies were very deftly written that being said having also spent a good chunk of my career as a screenwriter writing tv movies Sometimes you do thoroughly write a film and they cut your script for time and just don't tell you about it. So it's sort of like I I could see it going one of both ways. I know probably the big major plot hole is at the end, which which I'm sure we'll get to when uh, Tanner and uh, Leela run in and tell everyone the plot of the movie, basically. But you're like, when did they find that out? Yes. <laughs> but I think it's also sort of like all these beach movies uh, usually are only like 80 minutes and they just have to rush it along. So I think that's kind of what happened because we're not only dealing that, we're dealing with a movie inside of the movie. But then also like, why do the villains abduct Mac and I, I'm forgetting the character's name, Ross Lynch. Oh, Brady. Like, um, Brady. Yes. Like, like I, 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 is that, I guess that's supposed to be like in what side story that, the uh the actual characters are the ones that are abducted and then everyone else goes to save them but like i don't there's a lot of questions i have for this movie and i think it's just that i was way too sober watching it well just so for comparison the run of beach movies that i believe it was american international pictures did of most of them early on had sort of very simple plots it's like Frankie's in a surfing contest and Annette's swooning, but she doesn't necessarily know that she wants to be with a surfer because X, Y, Z. But then as they realize they have to kind of stretch these things along, um, there's a movie, I believe, called Pajama Party, which is a beach movie. It just takes place at night, imagine. Um, Tommy Kirk has a secondary story in that where he's an alien from Mars who's like come to observe like space teenagers uh, and possibly bring some back for some reason. It doesn't really overarchingly connect with anything else that's going on. Uh, I think about The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini, which is also a beach movie, but has Boris Karloff, you know, famous for playing Frankenstein, and a ghost lady just kind of creeping around while everything else is going on. So I think that in the spirit of beach movies, there's also the thing where it's like, does it matter? We're getting to a song. <laughs> just just tuck in and go for it. <laughs> you're right you you know you're right i think i think you know i'm overthinking it and i'm like okay also i'm not the target audience because and i say that a lot on this on this podcast where i'm like i i'm well aware i am not a disney channel person sure you know i don't watch the movies all the time we never i mean i didn't have disney growing up so there wasn't really a lot of like all, all these other older ones you know early 2000s ones i'm like i've never seen it because it i i've never had the channel so well it's interesting to me because i obviously just even based on kind of the things we were talking about it's not my go-to style of movie either but what i think appeals to me about teen beach movie is that it, it walks this really interesting line where it is both very much a disney channel movie when you look at it you're like of course this is a, a decom but on the same token, if you've seen enough of them, it sort of is counter to very much how they set these up. I, I I like that it is, in a lot of ways, its own sort of thing, because most DCOMs are structured like, you know, Hallmark romances, where, like, will the couple get together? And they don't even do so until the very last frame right before credits. This movie starts with Brady and Mac in a relationship in the beginning, which, like, never happens in a DCOM. Uh, it also breaks the fourth wall continuously and points out to us, the audience, isn't this ridiculous? I mean, the whole number where they're addressing to each other, we're singing and I wish we're not singing. This is painful to be doing this while I'm just trying to talk to you. I I love that because Disney has made a whole empire out of like, wouldn't it be great to break out into song? And here's two Disney characters being like, absolutely not. It's not. Well, one really because yeah he's he he's drinking the kool-aid but she's not into it because so. <laughs> she's the one who's resisting and he and he actually falls uh jumps in with cruising for a bruising is that the song yeah it yes. is yeah it is where he's like 
where he magically changes clothes. <laughs> I will say this is the first time, because uh, I've seen this movie a couple times, and this was the first time that I'm like, wait, where did Brady get those clothes from? And then when he when the number's over, he's just back he's in his back. little swim swimwear. Yeah. Like, I watched this one and a half times for this podcast for you, and... <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I can, that, that second viewing, I was I could only get it halfway through because I was like, I can't anymore. <laughs> but I have to say though, like falling for you, that song is pretty awesome, pretty good. I really enjoyed it. I'm, I actually think a lot of the music in this movie, and I realize that uh, it is in in the eye of an ear of the beholder. But one of the reasons this really works for me is, by and large, probably the first. I don't know, five or six songs work for me. In terms of just song set pieces, the choreography in the aforementioned Cruising for a Bruising is one of the most insanely choreographed scenes that I have ever seen, not just on Disney Channel, but in general. That, like, the energy that they have to keep up the whole way, they're jumping on chairs, like, we get major market movie musical releases that do not have that level of choreography. I don't understand. I've there's a few other Disney Channel movies I've seen for various podcasts and things like that, and I'm like, what is with all this? Chore-? Like, I, I don't know if these are actually them singing. Acting is whatever, but like the dancing is where it's at with the with the casting. I feel like. They, they, I feel like they cast dancers and they're like, cool, we're going to you're going to learn how to recite lines. <laughs> no, I, we were even when we were watching it last night, I commented during the scene uh, where where they are addressing the fact that they break into song and they don't want to. Well, she doesn't. and He does. It, it leads into this sort of like soft shoe number with Ross Lynch, like really knocking it down. Right. And I said i was like i would hate to have to dance next to that kid because he's a beast like i mean he literally every time he has a dance moment in this movie it's it's star power and as far as like choreography goes i mean i i think that he drives a lot of those musical numbers just by unhinged choreography that he sells where was it there's a fact about that that i, I... okay so ross lynch kent boyd who played hold i'm looking it up <laughs> he played rascal and then uh molly gray who was where are you hold i think on. she's giggles right i think you are yeah she's giggles the three of them are on so you think you can dance so interestingly enough uh kent boyd molly gray was it molly gray yeah and Garrett Clayton, who play Tanner, they all seem to still be very much in touch because they do like TikTok dances together all the time. They're like always doing stuff on social media. I also know Kent Boyd. This is for you, Amy Sherman Palladino fans out there. He was a ballet dancer in Bunheads starring Sutton Foster. <laughs> I mean, he it looks like he's been in a bunch of stuff too. Uh, other great things. And he, he comes back for the sequel. Yes, there is a sequel, everyone. Now, do you want to do the sequel? <laughs> Have you um, seen the sequel? Is it good? I have I have seen the sequel. I will say that for me, it's not as strong as the original, but it does something that I think is a very, very bold thing for Disney Channel to do uh, in terms of playing with timelines and uh, in a way retroactively changing things knowingly that they established in the first movie. Probably to like the pearl clutching of, of, you know, their teen girl audience who just want our lead characters to get together. They do something very, very kind of like shocking. Like, I, I honestly do think it is shocking. Uh, so I can't hate it, but it's just I haven't watched I haven't watched it because like I saw like on IMDb and all that, that there was a sequel and everything. I was like, OK, cool. But then in this movie, in this one, in the teen beach movie, this first one, they set it up for you because at the end you have the characters come into the the characters of wet side story that which will never not be funny uh <laughs> come into the real world and they are losing their mind over a cell phone and you're like okay but part of me kind of imagines an alternate reality where they didn't make the sequel so they just left you on this cliffhanger <laughs> well 
they did that thing that a lot of like blockbuster movies even do marvel's very guilty of this where they do something in the end cap that they didn't actually just plan out and then they're like oh shit now we got to figure this out and uh so that kind of happens here because at the end of the original teen beach movie we see tanner and layla but also several of the other bikers and surfers come out of the ocean well in the sort of retconned opening of teen beach movie 2 i'll just quickly fly through this Spo- spoilers ahead spoiler spoiler in the retcon uh, version of Teen Beach 2, it's only Tanner and Layla who show up in the real world. Brady and Mac are like, wait, how are they out of the movie? And so they're realizing that as the movie, as they are in the real world and realizing that things are not movie perfect and like kitschy, sweet and cute all the time. Uh, more characters start coming out of the movie looking for them, but it's destroying the world of the movie. And they realize that if the movie ceases to exist then Brady and Mac would have never met because that's how they met watching the movie. Uh, but in the meantime, Layla's also sort of learning women's lib and maybe she doesn't just want to be somebody's uh, girlfriend. Again? She's learning lim- women's lib again? Yeah, but like in 2015 as opposed to like fake 1962. So, Got it. Well, because like that's what happens with Mac. Like Mac is being like, let's not be for men. Let's like have our own thoughts and everything. And- right. But yeah, and it's a big. Will you ever watch it? Probably. If you want to do it, I'll do. I will definitely watch it. <laughs> oh, as I say, then I won't tell you the ending. But I will say that Layla, Layla's uh, autonomy in the in the second movie is a very big uh, crux of of the changing of everything. So I I think that she's given more to do, and well, it's really more her movie than it is anybody else. So that's just. I guess if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, I could really use more Layla that. Go watch the second one. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll figure out if we want to do it. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, but okay, where do I want to go? There's so much that I don't think we have enough in the hour to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about some of the songs while we're while sure. we're kind of doing that. So the songs only happen in the movie world, right? So, except for the finale, which is. Okay, I think that was just them being like, we're Disney. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of treated that um, in the same way that I think about in the Buffy, the Vampire Slayer musical episode, Once More with Feeling. The spell is broken. No one's supposed to be singing anymore, but they still jam one more song in as sort of the finale number. Like, it's the residual effect of the curse or whatever. Uh, So even though no one says that, I'm just like, I'm just going to apply this logic here so it works for me. Um, But what I do like about the musical finale in the real world, it's not my favorite song in the movie, but what I do like about it is it looks messier in that everything that happens in the movie is very clean looking. Everyone looks pristine, but if you look in the, uh, at the end number, they're all wet. Their hair's wet. The sand is dirty as opposed to the opening number in the movie uh, Surf Crazy where everything looks so pristine and shiny. And like the lighting, it's like a real muggy day it looks like. It's not like the bright blue sky and bright lighting and everything that is like for Surf Crazy, this um, the one of the first songs right. in it. Which Surf Crazy to me felt like nicest kids in town. <laughs> From Hairspray? Yeah, I definitely think it was uh, purposely referential. And of course, it's funny then that Garrett Clayton would go on to be in Hairspray Live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I, I I don't know. There is this thing that happens when you work in, in film long enough that both you always have your, your love of movies, but sometimes the magic is a little ruined because you know what it takes to do something like this. Yes. And when I look at a scene like Surf Crazy... I can't help but be impressed, similar to Cruising for Bruising, but more so because of the whole outdoors and the aerial shots with the surfboards and all of that. That shoot had to have at least been three or four days long, if not a week, because there's so much happening that they they had to commit so much time to capture all of that. And when you think that level of detail goes into a Disney Channel movie, it's just wild to me. Meanwhile, a lot of the surfing shots, you're like... You only had this one shot, probably. Right. Because Well, in especially inside of Wet Side Story, that rings true because if you watch any of those movies with like Frankie and Annette, it's like just like re- reverse projection of a wave while he's just like rocking in, in front of the camera with perfectly dry hair. That was a great like reference. Um, it was so good. 
but but like yeah, what what watching the beginning, it's like you clearly had this one take. Yeah, like there's there's a shot of um, Ross Lynch jumping off of the jet ski or whatever that he's on. Well, first of all. <laughs> When he goes into the water with the jet ski, it's he very like, Baywatch. But like he pushes it a little bit and then jumps on it, and then we cut to him in the water. And I'm like, "How did you get in the water?" <laughs> <laughs> but also, he jumped. So he jumps off the jet ski into the water, and I was like, "You had like this one and maybe a second shot right in your back pocket because like it takes too long to dry him off because he's supposed to be bone dry." Right. or whatever and it's like yeah again yeah i, under, I understand what you're saying where you're like oh i un, the magic is ruined disney yeah well i mean also having shot at the beach before it sucks like I, <laughs> it's not it's not easy because sand gets in your gear water is dangerous for tech you know it's impossible to plan because it's noisy you can't plan for uh, the landscape to be exactly the same because the ocean moves constantly. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's one of those things where uh, it was probably insane for them to think that they were going to do this. Yeah, of course, in the beach movies uh, of yesteryear, they did also shoot like in Malibu and Santa Monica and things like that. But whenever you see them kind of directly engaging with the water, it's always like probably at AIP soundstage or something. It never. Right. And so the fact that they were just like, let's throw her on a surfboard and see what happens. Bold. You know? <laughs> and and there's also I, I don't know how well you paid it, how well you paid attention to like the camera lens, but there is water on it. Oh, there, yeah. There are water droplets on there. And I'm like, this is a mess, but I like well, it. <laughs> Me too. I also think that they probably, I guarantee that there was probably a discussion that someone was like, we should try and get a shot without that. And then someone was like, hey, we're going to be in the ocean. There's no way we're not getting water on the lens for the amount of time that we're going to take to shoot this. This is a TV movie budget. This isn't Marvel movie budget. (laughs) Right. (laughs) If you wanted, if we had Marvel movie budget, great. We could totally do that. They would have just made the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're right everything would have been green screened right it would have made the ocean um i was also there okay is the house and the restaurant the same set piece just like decorated differently i don't think so i do though love the weird duality that in the real world barry bostwick's shop is big papa's surf shop and in the movie it's big mama's, mama's. shake shack or whatever the hell it is <laughs> Uh, Big Mama, by the way, needs more screen time. What a iconic character who gets very little to do. She's just she always that, reacting. And she has that one moment where a guy, one of the, uh, an extra dances with her and she's like, I gotta, I gotta finish cooking. Go sit right? down. I was like, it's Kent Boyd. She has that, like this whole <laughs> moment with Kent Boyd. Yeah. I was just like, where's her story? Can, can, Teen Beach movie three be just about her? Yeah, Big Mama Surf. Big Mama Surf. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you know, I, I, it's not really like my theory, but like I feel like Disney Channel movies are trying to um, relive the magic or get as popular as High School Musical. Yeah, two because I think High School Musical two is the one that like broke all the charts or whatever, like with the most views and everything like that originally. So all these movies are trying to copy that formula. But with this one, it doesn't feel too much like a carbon copy. No. I think it's because of the parody. Yeah, me too. I think it's the it's the broad satire. Like I said, it breaks the fourth wall. Like you you couldn't have in high school musical 2 Zach Efron like going out to, into the middle of the desert and dance by himself and then talk to camera. It just wouldn't have worked. It would like Oh uh, boy, High School Musical Two is its own adventure. Uh, <laughs> but, a conversation for another day. <laughs> but this, I, I feel like this movie had a lot of very smart things happening. Like after falling for you, when um, they they're breaking the movie and everybody's just standing there, like, "What do we do? What's going?" 
Like, I was just like, that's very thought provoking. I want more of this or, or, and like at the end when they explained to Kevin Chamberlain that like, you're a character in a movie and you're the villain, like that broke him. (laughs) Right. And then he keeps looking at the camera, like, wait, what? As if, as if the camera's there and no one's seeing it, you know, which I really think is great. What I think is really smart about this in a way that is different from Pleasantville is in Pleasantville, of course, Pleasantville is a bigger movie with like a bigger universe and a bigger budget. But once those kids are pulled into the movie in Pleasantville, they live in the world of the movie as if it was as tangible as the world you or I live in. Whereas in Teen Beach Movie, once Brady and Mac enter Wet Side Story, they they basically are confined to the edit of the movie, which makes sense because that would be all that they would ever see watching the tape or watching the DVD. And so not only do you have that thing where they're all standing around because the plot is now broken and they don't know what happens next, but it's those moments where Brady and Mac will be talking inside of a place and all of a sudden they'll blink and they'll be in a different outfit in front of a building. And they're like, how did that happen? It's because if you were watching the movie at home, that would be where the scene change happened. And I think that that's so smart. And I think that those are things that I didn't even fully catch on to until I watched it a second time. Or the fact that, you know, they keep yes. trying to start the song, uh, the uh, the song where they, they're singing about Can't boys stop like singing. Girls. Oh, no, the, the girls like boys like boys like me, that song. Um, like, yes. Yeah. That song tries to start a couple times and Mac is like, no, we're talking and the music keeps stopping as it, but it keeps trying to force its way in. Cause that would be the next scene transition. So. Interesting. Yeah. This is like, I don't, I don't know if this movie, <laughs> if like, I'm trying to formulate this thought because it's like, I don't know if it, 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 <laughs> if it's earned the right to be this smart, <laughs> in a way because sure. they're par- they're making fun of things but they're also doing the things that they're making that they're joking about and i'm like okay but like other movies have done this better i feel like yeah i i think that also when you're in a satire as they are truly in a satire mm-hmm. there's a certain point where you um lambast the thing that you are are satirizing of course but in order to move it forward for the audience you still have to kind of commit to the thing i mean even something that is a bolder bigger satire like scream which is not a comedic satire but it is satire the whole point of kevin williamson's script of scream is to sort of stand back and critique our obsession with slasher movies and to uh critique a culture that keeps going back to watching these movies where you just watch teenagers get killed and why are we interested in this and why is society broken that we would like this and uh why do we derive entertainment from this and they kind of pointed out in the movie but then to push us forward they still make a slasher movie we still end up watching yes. teenagers get killed and so i think when i think about it in relation to um teen beach movie which is satirizing a very different genre but also satirizing a genre that isn't even as thoughtful as what we're talking about because as we pointed out beach movies of the 60s are very really one note it's sort of like uh we have to get to the surfing contest or the muscle beach contest contest at the end of the movie and then maybe frankie will like me and also we're gonna dance on the beach exactly so i think that there's there's that thing where it's like if you're gonna satirize satirize it but still push ahead it's it's kind of gonna be like well you're gonna be a victim of the circumstance (laughs) honestly for teen beach movie i think what what hinders it is the bookend scenes of being in the real world i think those are actually weaker than when we're in the movie and i get it like it's it you have to build up to get to us going into the movie but like i don't know they could have done it i think it could have been a little stronger i don't know yeah i think personally where this is where where this could have worked or or been reworked or maybe or maybe the original script was and something happened and they had to re-edit it on the day or re-reshoots or something we there's always stories of things like that and the imdb trivia page is a little weak on all of that they focus a lot on annette funicello surprisingly which i guess is nice uh but no it's interesting because i get what you're saying about the the bookend sequences 
And I can't help but also think about uh, The Wizard of Oz, but more specifically, John Waters talks about The Wizard of Oz when he saw it as a kid. And he was like, I don't get why she would want to leave that place. You know, here she's in from dreary black and white Kansas. And she goes to this place full of strange people and colorful things. And she wants to go back. And I think to some degree, uh, there's a little of that here. Because what we're agreeing on uh, is that the movie within the movie is the most fun part. And of course it has to be, it's the bulk of the film. But then once you're, you've lived through that and it's just sort of like, no, oh, I don't know if I want to go to high school or not. It's like, who cares? You could have, you could have stayed in wet side story and been singing and dancing, you know? Or, or like you realize, Hey, or this, cause this could also just be me, my, my adult brain overthinking things. But like that deal she made with her aunt is a pretty big thing that she yeah. for, neglects to mention. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, but that that to me, when I say that this is both very much a Disney Channel movie and also not a Disney Channel movie, that's the aspect to me that's very much a Disney Channel movie. Yeah. Because it would be a thing that like you watch some of these other DCOMs and again, they're constructed for a younger audience. So, you know, no shade in that way. But they'll present these sort of um, dramas that by and large aren't really big deals, but people like get so worked up about it and they don't tell their friends. And then that leads to the catalyst. And then Zendaya is giving a speech at the prom or whatever happens next, you know? So it's like, but that to me is just sort of like, that's the, that's the Disney channel moment. Oh, I'm going to move away tomorrow. Well, in the real world, of course he would have known about this. Of course she would have told him, but that wouldn't be very Disney channel movie. Um, But then I think, it, it it doesn't land as well because then we go into this world where they're making fun of of teen movies, not just beach movies, but teen movies. When Garrett Clayton smiles at her and gets the little bink in his teeth and she's like, don't do that. Like, <laughs> it's like it's something that he can control. It's like they She calls know. him like a mannequin with six rows of teeth or something like that. <laughs> I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, they, there are... Oh, God. there It's just so all over the place it's such a mess and i don't know if that's on purpose though i feel like it is i mean i i do think that we we started the conversation acknowledging that we're kind of on opposite ends of the fence on how we feel about this movie but i do think that there's a lot of things that uh through this conversation we can reconcile both our points you know I, i get exactly why you wouldn't like something for the same reason that i think it's fascinating brief sidebar though since i mentioned garrett clayton i actually love his performance in this because he presents Tanner as so dumb, but yes. like in, in a fun way, like all of his scenes where he just has like extended bits of dialogue with anybody. They're, they're hilarious. He was him and Gracie Gillum who plays Leela. Yes. Like I, I get them. There's, per- I don't know how I'm supposed how I feel about this movie as a whole personally, I there are moments that I laughed at. I laughed with it. I I loved it. Um, their characters being so one dimensional, dumb. It was perfect. But like, also, there's parts where I'm just like, "Did you under? Do you understand what you're saying? Like, do you get this reference, child actor or no, young adult actor? There are just I don't know the the. the the wordplay really does crack me up. During the scene where Tanner's trying to woo Mac and he drops like the the little snippet of the Shakespearean sonnet and she says, did Shakespeare say that? And he says, <laughs> no, I did right now. <laughs> and I just think that that's such a dumb joke, but it yes. works because that's who he is. It presents it like he like once the thought left his head, he's not thinking about it anymore, you know? That like both of those characters, uh, him and Leela, are like they, yeah, they. I don't know what I want to say, honestly. They this movie kind of broke me. I think <laughs> there, there are like other '80s movies I've seen that like are wild bananas that we can blame it on the cocaine. I just don't know what to blame it on for this movie because like, like we've all seen the bad eighties movies where you're like, yes, everyone was high on Coke. Probably. I mean, who knows? Maybe there's, maybe people were high on Coke too for this. movie. You know, I discount nothing. <laughs> um, I have nothing else I want. I don't know if there's anything else I need to say about this movie. Do you have anything else you want to talk about before we get to sharp and flat? 
I just, I don't know. I really think that it's a lot of fun. I, I appreciate that they took a chance to revive a genre that we don't really get many movies in anymore. And they did it lovingly, but also satirically for an audience that I'm pretty certain they were aware wasn't going to by and large get it. Like there were a lot of references in this movie that do date back to the AIP beach movies that of course a child of 14 or 15 watching Disney channel is going to not connect with. But for someone like me, who's, you know, nine times out of 10, not looking to Disney channel for an evening's entertainment. The fact that, uh, Mm -hmm they touched upon this and and kind of revived a genre from the drive-in era that i personally like i was thrilled i and i love the music i love the choreography every time i see some of these numbers i think oh i probably should go back to the gym because like i i can barely walk up the stairs without getting tired and these, <laughs> these kids are launching over chairs and stuff so <laughs> There's a lot to, there, for me, there's a lot to like, honestly. And, and even the kitschy aspects, the whole uh, Kevin Chamberlain, like weather, you know, device, that to me is, is so dumb. I love it's so it. dumb, <laughs> but it, it's very much in line with what we were talking about earlier. These weird B plots that some of the later beach movies had that usually utilize B movie horror stars that at the end of the film, you're like, why, why was Elsa Lanchester from the Bride of Frankenstein in this movie? You know, kind of like- I have... I have a movie recommendation for you. I've done it on this podcast already. It's called Voyage of the Rock Aliens. I, I love Voyage of the Rock Aliens. Okay. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Did you get similar vibes from that in this movie? Totally. Totally. Okay, great. Um, yeah. A huge <laughs> fan of that movie. Love Pia Zadora. Waiting for the Pia Renaissance. Um, there, It will come a day. That's, that's all I'm going to say about that. But yeah, like, uh, watch. Because like for that one... That's the one I was saying, like, we could blame the cocaine on that one, on Voyage right. of the Rock Aliens. I don't know. Like, like this one, I'm just like, I'm getting similar vibes from that, from Vo- from Rock Aliens. But, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it exists. So when I think of, of certain kinds of cult movies, especially when we think of cult films in relation to horror, it's sort of like a certain color palette. It's a certain aesthetic. But there was this different kind of cult film that especially rose to prominence from the end of the sixties through the eighties that are more kind of like hyper colored mania sort of films. And you look at something like voyage of the rock aliens or earth girls are easy. uh, And in teen beach movie, I think exists in a, a space like that where it's like, it's candy colored and it's wild. And maybe it seems like it's family friendly, but the more you dig into it, it's like, Hmm. There's more going on here. Now, of course, Disney Channel original movie, Teen Beach movie, is more family-friendly than these other ones. But there's this subversive element that's wrapped up in sugar as opposed to wrapped up in shadows that I think lends a like kind of a connective mm-hmm. tissue between some of those, those other films. Because in Earth Girls Are Easy, Julie Brown has this whole big beach number that basically could fit in this movie here you know so i don't know but also if a giant squid monster came out of the water like in voyage of the rock aliens in teen beach movie i would believe it (laughs) well sure when they're tied up at uh kevin chamberlain and uh less camembert i believe is the other character yeah uh, when they're they're tied up at the lighthouse brady says i bet you're glad that my favorite movie wasn't tarantulas on a train and she just kind of gives him a look. But I think to myself, I'm like, but if they like if the channel changed at that moment and Disney then put us in that movie, I would have bought it. I would have bought it 100 percent. You know, it was and like uh, there's also moments where I'm just like this wet side story is your grandpa's favorite movie. Clearly, your grandpa and your boyfriend are like bonded over their love of this movie this girl acts like she has never seen this movie before. Right. Which And I a... and I get it though, too. She is the audience. she is the audience being like, right. okay, what's next? Okay, when can we go home? Okay, blah, blah, blah. Cause somebody has to do that for us, the audience. Oh, speaking of bonding, one thing that I just because I do this on my show all the time, we always talk about the queer subtext of films. I cannot ever and this is a different kind of bonding, obviously. 
But the scene where Layla and Mac are talking to each other in the bedroom and they have this like very intense like moment together. Oh, they're about to kiss. I, I'm Yeah, right? I was just like, in a different world, if this was not a Disney Channel movie, I think the ultimate gag would have been they go in the movie and instead of the couples falling for the other person, it would have been like Layla and Mac and Brady and Tanner. And then it would be like this weird kind of confusion because yeah. it is, there is this weird like, homoerotic thing that's happening I'm sexual just, I'm just attention yeah. yes yeah 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 but like disney channel will never do that i don't no. i don't know though i honestly i don't know because on their show high school musical the musical the series there there are gay characters in there so yeah never well, actually, say never um frankie rodriguez who plays carlos uh i worked with for two seasons on a on a web series prior to him getting that gig we're very excited for him he's so awesome on that show uh okay one more time is there anything else you want to talk about before we get sharp and flat no i think you know i threw out my my sapphic love connection (laughs) so it's it's now time to it's now time great sharp flat so in this section we're going to highlight some moments whether or not we talked about it if we liked it it's sharp and if we didn't like it or thought it could change it's flat what would you want to do first? I I'm I don't really know anymore what I. <laughs> um. Well, I have a feeling that I'm probably going to be more sharp than flat on a lot of these. So why surprisingly, you... I do have a lot of sharps. All right. Well, you have let's a. Bull... Start, let's start with the flats. Let's just get them out of the way then. Okay. So for me, I flatted the modern day. I did it. I just didn't like it. It didn't. It, it I, like I said, it felt a little weak. It felt a little too weird tonally. And then the other flat I have are the tonal shifts in this movie where like they're arguing, they're breaking up, but then they're still dating in a way. And I'm in those. And then like the pair, some of the parody moments, but like, then there's some moments that I think are accidental parodies. So it's like, okay, pick a, Pick something. I need I need one thing here. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess I would echo the flat on the reality. I don't, it doesn't bump me as much as it bumps you, but there are things about it I don't love. Uh, I, I think that I would have liked a little more from the aunt character because she kind of just sh- shows up for the mechanism of delivering the news that Mac Oh my God, the leave. aunt. Yeah. And I don't even necessarily think that that actress, because I think about this a lot, you know, sometimes we we give actors hard times, but they're doing what they have with what they're given. I, I don't think that she necessarily portrays the ant poorly. I just don't think the ant is given a lot to do. And I, and I get that it's because they want to rush us into wet side story and she's just the catalyst for the one last surf. But I, I feel like we could have had like a beat or two more with her because it would have both sold her pressuring Mac, but it also would have made her relenting when Mac decides to say more believable. We just need, we needed one more bit of human context, if that makes sense. Yeah. Cause like the aunt didn't seem as heartbroken for not having her sister, Mac's mom in the world. Right. I mean, who, we don't really know how long I'm assuming the mom died. Cause that's also a Disney thing. Uh, oh yeah and then, and no they, then... they mentioned she passed away like at some point yeah. oh right, right right and then i don't know they don't mention where Mac's dad is so great but like you know the the aunt just seems too heartless for yeah. no reason but then at the end when Mac's like i'm gonna say she's like all right okay cool <laughs> bye even though she was when Mac was like, I don't want to go at the beginning, she the aunt was like, No, you have to go. We pro- we made a deal. Right. <laughs> With it. Okay. And that's it. I just think that if she had had like one more humanized moment, it would have just helped solve those moments. I mean, she does stick around and dance with Barry Bostwick at the end, so it's kind of like whatever. uh, And in terms of other flats for me, oh, I would just say more Chi-Chi. I could always use more Chi-Chi. You could always. And giggles. Yes. Giggles and fringe bikinis. Like, come on. um okay sharps oh well i want you to go first yeah yeah cruising for a bruising ultimate sharp uh to me that is not only one of the best numbers in the song it's one of the best numbers that disney's ever done on any any one of these kind of movies uh in terms of choreography uh, i like the song because it is very much in line with these kind of movies so that's a big sharp for me 
sharp Ross Lynch dancing. I've talked about it. I think that he is a dynamo in this movie. This is one of those things where watching it, I'm like, oh, of course he's a star now. Like, it makes sense, you know? What are my other... You know, I'm going to give a sharp to Kevin Chamberlain for selling ridiculousness. Because when when I have ever engaged in conversation about this movie with anyone, just even casually, we never talk about that subplot. For a good reason. It's it's purposely in there as a throwaway thing. But... It's like the G plot. It's not even a B, C, D. It's all the way G. (laughs) Yeah, but he owns it. He owns it. Right. He is hilarious in this. Because he was playing the bumbling sidekick, but he's not bumbling. Right. But it's clearly that's the trope that they're trying to fill. Exactly. But he, yeah. Um, I agree, I agree with you with the choreography, Cruiser for a Bruisin. I also really liked I, uh, Falling for You. Like great that, number. Like, musically, that one is great. Because the dancing isn't really, there is no real dancing in that one. Right. But like... She sells it. Um, I, I'm sharpening the line. We died and ended up in a musical. It's a good one. I was like, yes, this is this is the thesis. This is what what you're doing. Um, okay, so I don't remember what exact. Uh, this is happening when they're going to the lighthouse for the first time. But in the background, did you see the guy juggling ukuleles on the beach? Oh, there's a lot of like rando stuff that happens in this. I was like, <laughs> During the, um, if you look during the luau sequence, uh, when they're doing meant to be, look at some of the people in the background. They're all doing weird stuff. I am going to, I I probably will be rewatching this, not sober. Uh, (laughs) It's like nothing like insane, but it's just sort of like everybody, I feel like the director was like, make a choice and stick with it. And people did. Um, I'm also sharpening. So it's also another little moment, but I really liked it because it felt very theatrical. Um, During, ooh, I think it's the song Like Me. There's a moment where there's like the little screen dividers like go down and it turns into a little platform with microphones on it. I loved it. I love that too. I I love that. I don't think that's referencing a a beach movie at all. I think that's just them being like, let's do something wild. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Uh, That number I think is staged really well too because I, I love the little stage. It also kind of... That, if any number in this movie references Greece, it's kind of that. Because it's sort of like the Sandra D, the girls at the uh, at the summer yeah. party. Versus it's also like, summer nights because yeah. it's the guys and the girls singing about their things, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and then my last sharp I wrote down is that you could tell this movie was made in two weeks from start to finish. <laughs> from like <laughs> concept to final edit, it's been two weeks. <laughs> well... I, I mean, I do think that uh, I, I watched some behind the scenes stuff prior to coming on to the podcast in preparation. And my my sharp earlier for cruising for a bruising as well as uh, Ross Lynch, I would actually just extend to the whole company of this film because I watched this whole uh, making of where they talk about going to dance camp basically to like learn the choreography and how intensive it was. And just even watching them all in rehearsal spaces, like leaping over chairs and falling and like learning. And it was just sort of like a movie like this, whether it works or not as a movie, we know the problem with a lot of musicals that don't quite sell is they just don't sell the musical. And these performers sold the musical for for you know for better or worse i think you know i think that every number is hit with extreme energy and extreme choreography when called upon uh and if they didn't if they didn't put in the time so whether the shooting time was long or short i can tell that they put in a lot of time so i have to oh, i was yeah, i was yeah, just yeah. being funny and facetious like i right 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 <laughs> I, I mean like i said though like there are some shots that you can tell that it was like we don't we can't do 100 takes of this we have right. like two maybe three because of all the waves because of being outside like other shots on the beach i think that's really a beach i don't think that's a soundstage i think that they shot this in hawaii i could be wrong i know that disney owns property in hawaii which shock to nobody um but i i think that's the case there is a scene and it's the it's only one scene and i'm actually surprised that they didn't digitally remove this because i know they love to do stuff like that 
but maybe it is because of the meta nature of the moment, but it's during the song where they're doing the not a song number, you know, like it, mm-hmm. I don't want to be singing. If you see across the bay, you can actually see resort buildings on the other side <laughs> of the island, <laughs> but you can't see it from big mama's uh, or anywhere where the main movie within a movie characters are. So it's sort of like Brady and Mac are removed as if to say that they have walked past the set of the movie. That's like kind of my headcanon. It's probably, oh. they just, they didn't, um, they probably just didn't digitally edit it out. But uh, there's a way that like, if I was an exec and someone was like, is that a mistake? I'd be like, no, they walked past the set of the movie. You're welcome. Disney channel, by the yeah, way, welcome, for, yeah. for using that from now on. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that somebody is going to raise that point at D 23 about a movie that is now a decade old. <laughs> Are you go? You know what? You should do that. That's what. That's your new job. You for the next D twenty three. You know what? No, I'm going to say it here. If you are listening, Disney execs, and you want to do a 10th anniversary Teen Beach movie panel at D twenty three, I am ready to host it. I am. <laughs> just don't Wikipedia the rest of my resume. I am. I am a squeaky clean Disney person, ready to go and host this panel. Let's go. Pe- don't talk about Peach's Christ. Don't. <laughs> Who's she? Who's that? She sounds. She sounds like 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 a made up character, a Disney character, a new Disney princess sidekick. You know what? Honestly, not now. I'm writing a, a stern letter to someone now. Um, <laughs> uh, would you add any of the songs to your life's playlist? Would I add any of the songs to my life's playlist? So, like, I mean, I mean, I know they're all cheesy, and they are. They are specific to the movie, basically. Right. But like, I wrote down Falling for You because like, it seems like that's a nice song to listen to on like a car ride or something, you know, or. Yeah. You know what? I think if you're talking about a song that works solely independently, because I do, like I said earlier in the interview, I like a good chunk of the songs in this film. And if they pop up while I'm taking a walk or something, I won't like skip past it. But it, in terms of like making it part of my own soundtrack and making it work, that's a little trickier. Like, cause in no circumstance will I be at a Shake Shack dancing on a chair, you know? Well, maybe some circumstance we'll see. Well, you, who's to say, uh, but what's no, fallen... stopping you? How dare you say that? <laughs> but I think fallen for you for sure has that kind of, we we had that moment and still do. I think Adele still still does this to some extent, but we had that moment where like Amy Winehouse and Duffy and early Adele really relied a lot on kind of doo-wop sort of sounds at, mm-hmm. for their singles. And I think that to a certain degree, Fallen For You would fit right in with that kind of vibe. And so I, I could see that working. Um, I also just think from a soundtrack of life uh, standpoint, not a song is funny because because it's literally talking about how the song is using you as a prop to push the story along. And I think that that's, that's, I, I, I love meta humor. So I might take that as well. Yeah. The other thing that I, now that I'm thinking about it in cruising for a bruising, when Ross Lynch sings his verse, who was supposed to sing that? <laughs> I think it was supposed to be Butchie and I, because they, but they constantly uh... are changing the, the, the movie. Right. Um, I, <laughs> Oh man, I I love that scene so much. It's, it's so just, good. <laughs> it really is. This, the hitting of the jukebox, everybody doing the heaving breaths, everyone like, oh my god, so good, so good. I, on the IMDb page, they do point out that the jukebox is twenty four cents, and she puts in a quarter, so the jukebox owes her a penny. <laughs> well, it was a, a different time. That was your, that's, that also, was... that's also weird that it's twenty four cents. Right. I think that's probably someone in the art department who just was like, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think in 1962 it would have even been 24 cents. It would have probably been a dime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, They also do talk about how they pay homage to Annette Funicello in the costume design. I just want to throw that out there because it's an interesting thing where Annette Funicello in her team, in her beach movies, uh, as a deal that she had with Disney, she couldn't show her belly button. So right. if you notice, all of them are covering, all the women are wearing bikinis, but they are covering their belly buttons. Yes. So, um, yeah, I, I've always liked that little bit of trivia. And I think it's kind of passed into a little bit of urban legend. I Because I've read subsequently that Walt Disney never said that she couldn't. 
but she said that she did it out of respect for him, which is in its way kind of, let's, I would like to unpack that at another time. Uh, she did, I think after her contract with Disney ended though, eventually show her belly button in these beach movies. Salacious. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, she's basically naked at that point. Uh, and on that note, we're done. We did the yeah. episode. We did the thing. Just we- as it starts raining here in LA, it's like the finale of the film. <laughs> <laughs> uh michael do you have anything you would like to plug or promote uh yes we have mentioned a couple times midnight mass the cult movie podcast that i co-host with drag icon peaches christ that comes out every other week at midnight on wednesdays we also uh depending on the time of this airing have a live show coming up on march 27th in the city of san francisco where we're doing fright night with special guests oh that'll be in just a couple of days of this re- release Yay! Uh, I myself am Michael Verratti on Twitter and Instagram. It's just my name, V-A-R-R-A-T-I. I do have a couple things coming to your television soon, but unfortunately, thanks to contracts I've signed, I can't tell you too much more other than keep your eyes on Shutter in the near future. Uh, thanks for having me. Or your IMDb page, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, and if you want to talk more about teen beach movie you can email me at butasongpod at gmail.com i'm also on facebook instagram twitter and tiktok at butasongpod uh do you think this movie was actually smart i don't know let you tell me uh and if you want to be part of next episode's conversation while well, we're going back to another second chance theater and we are talking about sing street everyone uh michael this was fun this was fun i had a blast yeah Let's talk uh, more decomp. No, let's not do decomp. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, we'll find we'll find a a movie that is strange and more Voyage of the Rock Aliens esque musical for you next. You can you yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and thank you everyone for listening. And bye for now. Special thanks to Justin Johnson for creating the podcast's artwork and to Nick Bombasino for composing the theme song and the jingles in this podcast. And thank you to CastBox for hosting this podcast. Bye again, everyone, and have a musical day.